as I felt uneasy throughout. I mean, it is a story that is born of anxiety. And like, it is a moment like our present moment where things feel very dislocated and people are looking to somehow ground their anxiety in something. But yes, I mean, the gender things are fascinating. They're, they're braided together. And in fact, you have women leading the show, but men using the female complaints to their own ends. It's a very, I mean, everyone has his reasons is the sad conclusion you know, that you come to after years in Salem. Hi, welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I am so excited for this interview because first, I have Gail Crother, who we actually had on this podcast. So hi, Gail. Hello. So instead of talking about all things Sylvia Plath and Ann Sexton, we're <laughs> jumping back in time to Massachusetts, so similar territory, but 1692. So without further ado, I want to introduce the author we're joined by. We're joined with Gail Crother. No, Stacy Schiff. <laughs> We're joining Stacy Schiff. See, I'm getting it all mixed into my head. Maybe I'm starting to absorb the Salem atmosphere. Um, but we are joined with Stacy Schiff, who is a Pulitzer Prize winner for her biography, uh, Cleopatra: A Life, um, which definitely want to talk about a little, even though that's not our focus. But want to hear a little about Cleopatra. Um, and Stacy has received fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation and the National Endowment for the Humanities, as well as an Academy Award in Literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. And I think she's Zooming with us from New York City. Is that correct? That is correct. Ah, okay. Well, welcome, Stacy Schiff. This is so exciting to have you here. I'm delighted to join you. So I think right away, um, The Witches came out how many years in between was it from Cleopatra to the witches? You know, I'm never good on dates, but except historical dates, um, ones pertaining to my own life, I have, you know, I tend not to have a very good grasp of, but I think it's five years between them. So I think Cleopatra is 2010 and the witches was 2015. And one very much followed naturally upon the other. I know that sounds crazy, but it did. Oh, can you expand upon that? I want to, how did um, it follow? Um, there were so many reasons that, so many kind of questions that came together and impelled me towards Salem. But I think the greatest one was just thinking about women's voices, which obviously one is left with after five years with Cleopatra. And that sense of other moments in history where women or adolescent girls carry the narrative. And as far as I could tell, as far as I still can tell, they're really only two moments historically. And one of those would be Joan of Arc, obviously. Teenage virgins are not usually our narrators to anything. Um, and the other is 1692, when you have for nine months, um, a group of girls, a troop of girls, if you want to call them that, essentially leading the way. You know, the small and the meek have taken over from the great and the powerful. And it, it just, there were a number of other paths that led in that direction, but coming off of Cleopatra, seeing what the Romans had done with a Greek woman made me sort of think this is the obvious segue. Wow. Yeah, maybe if I can just jump in here, because one of the things that really struck me about your book and one of the things I absolutely loved about the book 
with gender politics in it. And I think before I read the book, I was probably guilty of thinking that this was a story that was going to be a straightforward story of patriarchy unfolding itself in a usual way. And what really took me back as I read your narrative was just how complicated the gender politics were and that it wasn't simply kind of, I mean, I, I made some notes, that, you know, that there are kind of women attacking men, there are women attacking women. And then it was really interesting towards the end, this quote that really jumped out at me, sorcery allowed men to attack other men through wives or by way of daughters. So there was this really complex thing going on with gender and I wonder I'd be really fascinated to, to hear a little bit more about that and how you felt as you were discovering that and writing it. I felt the answer the short answer to the last part of your question Gail is I felt uneasy throughout I mean it is a story that is born of anxiety and like it is a moment like our present moment where things feel very dislocated and people are looking to somehow ground their anxiety in something. But yes, I mean, the gender things are fascinating. They're they're braided together. And in fact, you have women leading the show, but men using the female complaints to their own ends. It's a very, I mean, everyone has his reasons is the sad conclusion of, you know, that you come to after years in Salem. Um, there's so many interesting, and there are like huge doctoral theses tucked inside here. There's so many interesting twists in the gender politics. Um, I mean, there's so many differences even in the way testimony is given. Men, um, men tend to see more elaborate visions. They tend to be more sort of hallucinogenic in what they report, which is really interesting. I mean, they seem to be more imaginative in this story. Women tend to confine themselves to more pedestrian complaints, and the men see these goblins and you know crazy creatures and glowing jellyfish in the fireplace. They, they seem almost more suggestible than the women than the women do. And then you have things like among teenagers when teenagers. Um, accuse each other. It tends to be a teenager of the opposite gender, which sort of hints at something that might have been in the background here. Um, I because mean, everyone has different reasons, obviously, to be accusing someone else or confessing himself or herself to witchcraft, but there tend to be cross-gender accusations for the most part among the teen, among the adolescent group. So there are all kinds of sort of different, different takes on the gender differences here. Yeah, and I think to go with the teenagers, just because it's wonderful to have Gail since she's in England. So like we have two different covers of your book. I have <laughs> the very crucible North American edition. And then she has, I mean, you could describe it, Stacey, but when did you know that you were going to have two very different covers? I think just this world? moment. No, I'm, I'm only kidding. <laughs> um, um, you know, the author is the last person usually who's told about the cover on her book. Gail, you, right? you've had this experience. Um, the first one, obviously, is a photo shoot that was done based on, you know, very much historically accurate, but was really based on the idea that we could bring these women to life in some way, or that one should be able to bring these women to life. And I don't know why the British publisher decided not to use it. I've actually never asked myself that question until just this moment. But I do think that the etchings and the engraving, the woodcuts are really evocative and take us immediately back to that time when aesthetics were more primitive and our thinking was more, American thinking anyway, was more fundamentalist and things were more black and white, in fact, if I may just put it that way. Mm. I think as well, this is very European. Let's see, I, I, I haven't seen one in a while. It is very European, right? Even the typeface seems more European. Yeah. 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 And it looks like um, that whole concept of the black man, of the devil, is really in 
Gail's cover from um, The Woodcut. There's almost right, a satanic right. cult image. Um, but, you know, that's actually yeah. that's actually an interesting thing about Salem. There's so much literature and so much deep understanding. We can talk about this about witches and who was a witch and what constituted a witch and what a witch could do. Everyone's really very foggy about the devil. No one seems to have a very, I mean, he's directing all of this. The witch is, you know, a confederate of the devil. She works for the devil. She is his accomplice. She reports to him. But nobody seems to have a very firm grasp of exactly who that diabolical genius is. And it's kind of interesting that we know so much in so many specific ways, you know, almost to, to our modern minds, almost humorous ways about the powers of a witch, and yet that the devil should remain so ill-defined. Yeah, yeah. And as a 19th century scholar, most of my knowledge with Salem comes through Nathaniel Hawthorne and his trying to reconcile his um, ancestor, Hawthorne, or I think it's Haythorne. He like goes through this changing of name because he feels so guilty having that name. But with um, the Scarlet Letter and um, even young Goodman Brown, Hawthorne, he goes more in that black man devil imagery with being in the darkness of the wilderness. And I know Gail and I talked a lot about boundaries and like, it's very hard to understand the boundaries in Salem, like whether it be spatial with the setting, whether it be the invisibility because of the darkness and they can't really see at a certain point. So, I mean, can you talk about that, Stacey? Like, why was it so important to bring that to bear in your you put you put your finger you really put your finger on it, Andrew, because it is about definition and self-definition. And on the one hand, I guess I would say boundaries is exactly the word. On the other hand, I think it's almost adolescence because it's it's like a triple adolescence. It's about an, it's an adolescent story about an adolescent country at an adolescent time, each of them brushing up against authority in some way, in some way that is very abrasive. Um, and all of those are about boundaries. And I guess I would start with the most obvious one, which is, you know, this is a society hemmed in by and in many many ways traumatized by encounters with the Native Americans. Mm. And I mean, it'd be hard to find a family in Salem that didn't have a friend or relative who had been a victim of one of the previous Indian attacks or the or the previous Indian War. So you have a whole demographic that is essentially thinking there there are dark alien people out there. And we need to keep them at bay. We need to protect our borders, our boundaries. And you also have a village that is seeking, Salem Village, where the witchcraft breaks out, is seeking its own autonomy from Salem Town, which is a wealthier, more urban community. Salem is usually referred to as the farmers. They don't really get along among themselves. They don't really have the institutions that are necessary to, in some way, purge the community of their antipathy. So they keep running to Salem town to sort of moderate among them. And so the, the boundaries between Salem village and Salem town are not well-defined. So here you have a community trying to sort of stand its own ground, which it can't entirely do, nor can it completely protect itself from the, you know, the alien invaders outside. And there's always this sense of the will, you know, the howling wilderness, the wilderness at the door. And then in addition to that, of course, layered on top of that, you have the religiosity of this community where there are insiders and there are outsiders. There are people who are mem- her church members, full church members, and people who aren't quite church members or people who haven't attended church meeting as often as they should have. And that's a certain kind of boundary as well. And it's a, 
how to put this, it's a fraught one because you also have a community that is often in this place centrally in the, in the witchcraft accusations, a, a community that keeps butting up against its own ministers that doesn't even really welcome its ministers, gives its, each of its ministers a very hard time. And so even those boundaries are, you know, in flux at all times, if not, if not just downright, you know, erupting at all times. Yeah, and I think it struck me as well that one of the, one of the kind of biggest things that I noticed, it links to what you were just saying about how there was all this knowledge about witches, but not very much about the diabolical genius of, of um, the devil behind it all, is that there is this sort of boundary of what's tangible and what's intangible. So there's this massive sort of almost chasm between this like sorcery which seems to be intangible sorcery the devil what's going on here and then the very very tangible which is the body and the body seemed really I felt quite central to the story and that you know bodies were being scrutinized whether it was I think you mentioned for like a flea bite or a wart or a mole on, on the body and and this is ev evidence of that somebody is a witch so you've got this thing that can't quite be pinned down and is just kind of there intangible and then something like a spot on the body is and I find that the contrast between those two things really fascinating how that intangible suddenly becomes focused onto something like the body. It's funny because you have and this is another one of those doctoral dissertations that's folded inside here you have so often a young girl in a room surrounded by a whole cadre of adults, most of whom are male, who are observing her every move and examining her body. It's a fairly intimate situation of which we have almost no descriptions, by the way. But we do know from other cases in which similar situations happen, usually someone who was, who was expected to have been a victim of possession, that those girls loved the attention. And they thrilled to the sort of, you know, many visitors. One girl dismisses all the women and asks if the men will stay. I mean, there's just, there's a tremendously you know, interesting dynamic there with female bodies under the microscope mm -hmm. and men probing. And then again, of course, you have, as you mentioned, the probing for the witch marks, which are the, the indication that someone is in fact in league with the devil because the body is, is understood to be marked in some way by a witch's mark. And everyone's very specific about the fact that there, there must be a witch's mark on the body. But of course, in the 17th century, no one knows anything about anatomy. So what indeed, what actually that mark consists of is extremely vague. So anything, you know, a bug bite, a mole, anything could be construed as that witch's mark. And you see people, you know, often they were the experienced midwives who were examining the women, the women suspects when they were in jail. You see them trying to reason out what they've just looked at. And is this a witch? Is this diabolical or is this just normal um, human anatomy and not really being able always to come up with an alternative? And at one point, one of the victims says, you know, could I please be examined by someone who knows what she's doing? Um, so you have this full-scale invasion of the of the victims' bodies as well. Yeah. This might be a stretch, but I know there's so much erotic desire, like what you both are talking about in this exchange. But even a hickey, like, wouldn't have been known, like a love bite, and would be seen as suspicious. Like, is there any kind of evidence you found, Stacy, that those who went outside of, you know, the monogamous model or the marriage model were especially um, put under the microscope? Like if they were, I don't want to say, 
you know, if they were queer, but, you know, if they just didn't fit this specific model of marriage, bearing children, you know, were they even more suspicious? I think they were thinking along sort of Arthur Miller terms. I mean, we'd like to make this about infidelity. Um, anyone was suspicious, and this is, you know, it hits you only later in the day after you've been spending a lot of time in Salem. It occurs to you that anyone who is in any way different is suspect. And the difference could be the obvious, you know, you're, you cook too well, um, or you came in from the wet and you turned out to be dry, which is obviously an indication of witchcraft, right? Um, or your cheese was too good, or you had a book in your pocket, or you were very wealthy. I mean, as if one of the wealthiest men in Salem town is accused. And he'd made a lot of enemies because he was a fairly litigious character, but everyone was a litigious character. And it seems like his real crime was his success. So in a funny way, I wouldn't put it so much partly because we don't know enough really on the state of the marriages as I would just in anyone who was an outlier because he was too good, too tall, too smart, too fast. It's, you know, especially women fall under this jurisdiction, right? They should all be, you know, kind of under the radar in some way. Um, and often you also have relitigated accusations, which are which are generations old. So most of the women who are most of the women who hang um, are related to someone who's been previously accused of witchcraft. And very often a mother's sin, so to speak, are visited on a daughter. Very often these are multi generational um, collisions that have just devolved to the next generation. I mean, it's. So I wish we knew more. I wish we knew more about the marriages. You know, there's a huge amount in the court papers about um, sexual harassment and sexual assault. Lots of lots of servant girls in a lot of homes, homes that are most of these women are living. Most of these girls are living in homes that are not with their biological parents, and very often those girls obviously were the victims of other men in the household, the stable boy, the servants, whatever. But there's no evidence at all of that with any of the Salem accusers. Yeah, I mean, I'm so happy you're talking about being in Salem because, you know, I was expressing to Gail, my last place right before the pandemic, like literally a week before lockdown was Salem when I was at a conference in Boston. And I'm like, okay, now's the time, Andrew, just go see what Salem's like. And I was so in love with the area. And like now it's so vibrant with alternative lifestyles and it's counterculture and like, I mean, how much time, you must have spent so much time in Salem, Stacy, for your So when I, when I started the, the papers, um, and as you know, the, the record is very spotty. So we have about a thousand pages of paper still surviving because the court records no longer exist. But the thousand pages of depositions and arrests and court supporting documents that do exist were when I started still in Salem at the Peabody Essex. They're no longer in Salem itself. So I spent a lot of time in Salem because I was reading through them. And there's just something so, I mean, I would kind of come tripping out of the archive at, you know, two or 2.30 to get coffee. And, you know, I'd go to the coffee shop down the street and there'd be, you know, a Martian in line behind me. And that just seemed totally logical given what I'd been reading. You know, just, it, it puts you in such a different state of mind. And you feel as if you are in a very dark, cramped, secretive place. I mean, it becomes, the, it is sort of a locked room mystery in many ways. And you begin to feel the, I don't know, you begin to feel sort of cram, cramped into the room with it in, in some way. Um, so yeah, I find, and I think there's an energy in Salem which somehow has regenerated itself. Yeah, a sort of a cult energy. Yeah, 
Yeah. I think one of the things that Andrew and I were talking about, about your, your narrative, if we could just go into a more kind of writerly question, is the way in which your authorial voice in this book drags you as a reader into feeling that paranoia and that that really, really closed in feeling that, that people must have felt at the time. Um, I mean, was that deliberate or was that a consequence of just how you were feeling after you'd done your research? <laughs> it's such a lovely, thank you for putting it in that lovely way, as opposed to, my God, I felt so cramped and uncomfortable in these pages. How did you do it? Um, <laughs> I, I, that's I, powerful writing, you know. I, I think it's a necessary feeling. I also think it makes people want to throw the book across the room after 100 pages. It is a dark and gnarly place. And you don't, it was very different from sunny Alexandria and Cleopatra, right? So I don't, not, I'm not sure everyone wants to live there, but I find it a psychologically very fascinating address. And, and for me, it was a very, it was very topical. It was a very modern address because I felt like that's where we were in some way politically at the time. But to go back to your question, you know, when I, I was sitting in the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem when I first read the account of Anne Foster, she's the Andover woman who has a crash on her stick as she's flying to the satanic meeting in Salem. And, you know, I just remember sort of jumping up in my seat in a funny way, like what would make a person confess not just that she'd flown through the sky on a stick, but in such vivid detail that she had not just flown, but she'd suffered an aerial mishap. I mean, that's just great imagination. And then she later tells a minister comes to speak to her in prison precisely what she brought in terms of provisions to the meeting. And she's very specific. You know, she had bread and cheese in her pocket and her stick mate didn't. And you know, she's very, very careful with all the details. And when I read that, I just thought it's lunatic. And my job here is to make the lunatic seem somehow believable. And she somehow has to be the one to fly us into the story in a way. Mm. So, so I knew then that, you know, I was going to be heading toward that somewhat uncomfortable address. And I knew from a fairly early point, although I didn't know how I was going to do it, that Ann Foster somehow was going to be the person to take us there, even though chronologically she's not the first confessor. In fact, not until August is the which did the witch troubles come to Andover. But that there was something about the specificity of that and the buying into a narrative that you know to be fictional, but somehow you just can't, you can't separate the reality from the irreality that I found to be sort of at the heart of the story. Yeah, I think that came across really strongly in the narrative. I mean, it, it's that, that, that pulled me up when I was reading it. Definitely. Then, but then I realized, by the way, I mean, I'm, I must have been, you know, 40 pages into writing it and I realized here I am talking about witchcraft and I don't think anybody knows what I'm talking about. And I had to, I realized I had to go back and do a like mini course on what you meant when you said someone was a witch in, you know, in the 17th century. You know, what did a, of what did a witch consist, and what exactly was her crime, and where does the idea come from, and how had other countries treated the idea of witchcraft? Um, because of course, one of the one of the beauties of it is that one of the arguments um, in its favor, one of the proofs that witchcraft existed was that every culture has the idea of witches. So how could every culture, different though they are, have come up with the same wacky idea if it isn't true? That was proof that witches must exist. And so I sort of had to get, I had to bring the reader into understanding, not that that felt lunatic and not that a witch was something out of the Wizard of Oz, but that this was a construct which was very common to in so many cultures and which does no longer survive in, in Europe at that time, but is very much present in, in 1692 Massachusetts. Yeah. And I was listening, so I had that experience. So even with listening, 
the hysteria, the paranoia, the isolation. I mean, it's like a fever dream when I'm hearing this extended dialogue. And But like Gail says, it's so believable. I have to question when I'm hearing it, wait, which is the actual account of the accused and which is Stacy providing the layer of historiography. And I think it's incredible because you've really created this almost fictive biography, even though we know it's based in realism. Well, the, the color of the, 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 the color in the, in the narrative is amazing. I mean, even with the limited documents we have, the amount of detail, you know, is really quite extraordinary. Um, and for me, one of the great questions there was, you know, as with Ann Foster, how did these people come to subscribe so fully to these ideas that they know to be false? And where you see that the most poignantly, I think, is afterward, when someone, be, when people begin to be skeptical, which we can talk about, but it happens very slowly. How do these people account for how they came up with these ideas? And a woman is finally asked, you know, but you said the devil was a black cat. How did you, you know, where did you get that idea? And basically, she said, you know, I, I was depressed. I just had a baby and a cat walked by. So that was it. Literally, you're asking someone to sort of explain their dreams is what it comes down to. Yeah. And I think, is it Eliza Foss who's your reader? Yes, she's apparently terrific. Yeah, she's wonderful. Oh, so yes, you haven't heard yes. her reader. Um, I, I, I've heard, I heard, I haven't listened to the, believe it or not, I have never listened to my own books on audio, but I think I might one day. Yeah, and I love audio books. Yeah, well, it's really good. It's good. It's, so, it's a very good audio book. I'm so thrilled. It's a, yeah. Yeah, It must be a hundred hours long, but I'm thrilled. Yeah, yeah, well. 18 hours, but still. Okay. <laughs> um, well, and I think to go from what you're talking about, especially, I know we definitely want to address like how um, almost is there reparations that occur is a question I always have. Like, is there ever, like when does the Salem community actually have a mass apology for, you know, these families who lost loved ones? from this mass hysteria movement. I mean, like how long does that take, Stacy? Okay, hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. That would seem like such an such a no-brainer from our perspective, right? Um, let me work backwards. Arthur Miller goes to back to Salem in, I think, 1952 to research the crucible. And he's, you know, he's impelled to go there because he's he's essentially fed up with what, what he sees as liberal paralysis in the face of the McCarthy accusations. And he sees the parallel between the two. And he's not deterred when someone points out to him that there are communists, but there were no witches. He still see, thinks that the, para, the parallel is very powerful. So he goes back to Salem um, to research. 
And he finds that nobody wants to talk to him about Salem. Nobody's willing to mention it. It's still an unmentionable thing. There's still such horror and dread of what had happened, horror and regret about what had happened um, that really the subject is off the table. And we can talk later about, if you want, about how it comes back onto the table. But, the, but to go back further in history, um, it takes a long time um, before the idea of doing anything for the families who have suffered really comes onto the table. And so finally, early in the 18th, in 1710, 17, between 1710 and 1712, committees are formed um, to assign reparations to the families who have lost loved ones. And what's really interesting, if you look at those applications and those documents, is that nobody mentions the words, one word missing, witchcraft. It's always mm -hmm. basically the late unpleasantness. It's, you know, those, those dark, mysterious days. It's still too powerful and charged a word for anybody to use it. And I should probably say that the trials, these are the last witch trials um, in Massachusetts, but the, witchcraft, the idea of witchcraft does not end in 1692. People to continue to believe in witches. So there's probably a very good reason that that word is missing, both because the idea does is sustained for a certain amount of time afterward, and because it remains such a horrific charge. And so even people who have lost family members and know they were not witches are loath to use the word. So, so there are reparations made at that time. It's a sort of odd accounting because, for example, a, a daughter who accuses both her mother and her father will get reparations um, because she's spent time in prison. So, you know, it, it's hard to say that they were equitably distributed, but that is the first attempt to address what had happened financially. One of the witchcraft judges will offer up a, an apology in, in meeting one day, much to his horror, Samuel Sewell. It's an, it's an extraordinary moment. And Anne Putnam Jr., the girl who, one of the first accusers in the village of Salem, um, who accuses almost everybody who hangs, um, will do the same. And to your point about the devil, she in particular, but both of them really will assent, and some of the jurors, I'm sorry, will as well. The jurors and Ann Putnam Jr. will essentially say the devil made me do it. They, they basically will say, nobody told us, we were under the, we, nobody gave us better direction. We were under a delusion. You know, somebody should have helped us out essentially. But they're, they're pointing a finger at some dark and mysterious force that had led them to falsely convict people. So there's a weird, you know, I'm sorry I did it, but you should have given me more to go on here kind of feeling to the apologies. I think what one sentence that, that really uh, stood out for me in the book was, um, I think he said something like um, terror had, had worn out its welcome at that point where, where people start apologizing. And I was quite interested by that. Um, it, by that, did you mean that there was a kind of sense of horror and exhaustion? You know, it's such a great question, Gail. I think people do get exhausted by terror in the same way that various governments know that they can run the populace down. You can only remain indignant for so long. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? We have, we, have a, yeah. we, have a, we have a real patience problem with indignation or terror or, or fear. Um, it's very hard to sort of name one reason why the trials come shuddering to a halt. But I do think there is a certain kind of terror exhaustion there. And there's also a again to your boundaries question there's an there's an over overreaching um that goes on so many people at that point have become by the sum by the end of the summer of 1692 into the early fall 
there have been so many accusations in so many directions and they begin to reach very high ranking members of the community. And at that point, you be, people begin to have doubts that they had not had earlier when more marginal people had been accused. And so that certainly plays into it um, in terms of sort of terror has, has run its course. Um, how could this be such a great epidemic? And then also to the boundaries question, one of the reasons that you have such a fierce reaction, and I think the great mystery of 1692 is, is not the accusations, but the prosecution. But one of the reasons why you have this ferocious, vigorous prosecution is that everyone's on the same page. It's a very homogeneous community. Everyone knows the same imagery, knows the same books, um, is members of the same families. There's enormous amount of interrelation and, and intergenerational conflict. Once someone reaches beyond Massachusetts, in this case, the, the new royal governor reaches beyond Massachusetts to the New York ministers for an opinion on how the trials have proceeded. And he gets an opinion which is um, not entirely um, approving of what has happened in the, in the province of Massachusetts Bay. And there too, from that, he too begins to think of shutting down the trial. So again, it's once this escapes the hothouse community of, or the hothouse environment, um, of this of Eastern Massachusetts, you begin to see it differently. Hmm. And there's probably a lesson there, I think, for all of us, right, in terms of sort of mixing up the ideas a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But I think it would be remiss not to speak about, I mean, right, your book is focused on Salem and this microcosm of what happens, but Salem is very late to the witch accusations that swept Europe. So like my question is always, and I I was talking to Gail. I took this really wonderful shout out to Dr. Elizabeth Hyde at Kane University, where I went. I took this history of witchcraft course as an undergrad, and we oh. read the Malleus Maleficorum and the Hammer of Witches and so many accounts um, that, you know, why do you think Salem was so late? Like, why? I mean, how many years had passed since that European hysteria around witchcraft? For that, for that, I think there's actually a, a fairly concrete answer. Most of the settlers who come to Massachusetts, and as I say, they come largely from the same areas and they're of the same mind and have read the same books, um, come to America at a time when the witchcraft craze is at its height in Europe and in Great Britain. Um, so they bring with them the idea of witches and of this sort of prosecutorial spirit, but none of the literature that then follows, um, none of the skeptical literature that puts witch trials to an end in the West, in, in, the West, in, in Europe, makes its way to Massachusetts. And that's partly because the Massachusetts clerical establishment, establishment makes sure that that literature does not penetrate the colony. So you end up with these antiquated ideas. You end up with this um, virulent sense of um, fear and, and you know, the diabolical goings on without having factored in, you know, what we would consider sort of pre-enlightenment thinking about, you know, really we don't prosecute for this anymore. These were wrong-headed ideas. Um, and I think the, the Cotton and Increase Mather, who are the people who write the most about the trials or who are most instrumental in instructing the judges in any case, are constantly consulting their libraries. I mean, this is really an interesting case of the most erudite members of the community leading a community astray 
and of people having read too many books in a funny way. I mean, they know too much about witchcraft, but they don't know um, the history of what has begun to shut down, what has already shut down trials in the rest of the, of the world. Um, and that's why the, there's a Swedish um, incident, Swedish witchcraft panic, which gets layered in here, which is imported into New England directly through the works of Cotton Mather. And the Swedes have already realized that they have misstepped in this prosecution. They've already, the kids who had accused adults in that, in that witchcraft epidemic have said, we lied. People hanged and we lied. But that part, the fact that there's regret about this, that there had been falsehoods around it, never makes its way to Massachusetts. Instead, what you get is the account of this terrible witchcraft, which is so similar in so many ways to the Massachusetts witchcraft. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like what I was talking about in preparation for this is it's so interesting it doesn't go down the eastern seaboard like we don't like go into New York we don't go into Philadelphia like the other colonies are not swept up or even Boston I mean Stacy can you bring that up like Salem's only 25 miles from Boston and it's like Boston is a whole is living a whole other lifestyle outside of Salem town and, and there are people I mean there, there's a definite trend where the, the accusations go rural to urban. They don't go the other way around. So you get girls in the villages. And remember, many of these girls are accusing people they've never met. So they just know their names. But you get girls in the villages accusing largely men in Salem town and in Boston, in other words, in more affluent communities, whom they've never met, but whose names are obviously familiar to them. And, 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 and the, the answer, I think, to your question to some extent is, it took the collisions in that community, it took the antipathies in that community for the thing to erupt. I mean, at every stage, there's almost no, you can see it as sort of the domino effect. There's just every, every safeguard fails. The minister who maybe could have shut things down is actually himself at odds with his community and has reasons to, if not embrace the witchcraft, inadvertently encourage it. Uh, you know, the, the justices in Salem town, have known a lot about recent political developments. They may have more reason to prosecute than had other justices of the peace in other communities. Remember that none of these men are lawyers. So this is a court put together of the most eminent men in the community, but they're all of them applying to the Mathers, to the clerical establishment for wisdoms. So, you know, it probably could have happened if the Mathers were the ones who were instructing the justices, it could have happened somewhere else as well. It just happened to break out you know, for whatever reasons in this very, during this very cold winter in this very besieged house with these very young girls. And I think that's something too, that's, you know, there has, there are modern counterparts to that is that, you know, you have these young defenseless girls who know that their father is under fire or uncle in one case, uncle and father are under fire and who are very well aware of the fact that the community has in some way turned against their family. And that must have been and that must have been a terribly uncomfortable position to be in, especially for a child or a niece of a minister, where the eyes of the community are on her anyway, and who and who don't really have a means of discharging that fear that, you know, it must have been a suffocating feeling. And this was how that anxiety manifested itself. Yeah. Yeah. What I love is now everything is sparking my memory from the materials <laughs> from that course because. I don't know if you have you read Benjamin Franklin's satirical announcement that the witches are in New Jersey. I think it was like, you know, 1760s or something around that time. But like enough time has passed where he can 
I mean, I think a few people actually believe it, but the majority are mocking like his satirical piece. So it is interesting, like you're saying, the layer of when time passes, when does the American culture start to actually be able to register what happened? And, you know, returning to what you were going to talk about is how does Salem actually, how does that change happen when it embraces, like even just talking about the witchcraft trials? Um, so to your first point, um, you know, there's a witch dragged through the streets in Philadelphia during the Constitutional Convention, which is kind of staggering because, you know, you have this moment of, you know, deep enlightenment thinking, and you have a woman being dragged outside because she, I think, bewitched a cow. I mean, it, it's so that, you know, there is still this sense and there will be witchcraft accusations. There will just never be a set of trials, obviously, like these ever again. And, there, and most people in Massachusetts are still going on about possession and witchcraft for at least a decade or so afterward. Um, Salem rediscovers its, Salem has turned its back as we, as I said, on, on all of this history for years. Um, and it rediscovers it in a curious way. At one point in the early 60s, I think it's the early 60s, um, the show Bewitched was being shot in California on a movie set, on a TV set which burned down. And so they needed a place to be able to shoot some episodes. And someone brilliantly came up with this idea of, look, we're making a series about a witch. Why don't we go to Salem? So because they had no set on which to work, they shot several episodes. I think it's actually eight episodes that were shot um, of Bewitched in Salem. And then somehow um, it was a seed that was planted and somehow that kind of witchcraft uh, replaced this, that kind of glorious celebrity witchcraft replaced the sort of rotten shameful witchcraft and that is what that is when the town of Salem embraced its past as opposed to turned its its back on it it's kind of the most curious you know art influencing life um episode I'm kind of curious um in a way how because obviously you, you've spent so long years just kind of researching this and writing about it um um, one of the things that that struck me about the book um, that that ties in with this idea of commercialization is um, this is a really brutal story. You know, this is people being executed in really brutal, horrible ways, uh, and and I I feel in the way that it's it's the same here in the UK. You know, the Pendle witches and and that whole story, not. People hanged in, you know, in your book, there's a case of the only person being pressed to death. Um, and I wondered how it felt for you to be reading about that and the kind of horror and brutality of that and then kind of seeing today the kind of commercialization around that. How did that make you feel? It's it's a very uncomfortable, uncomfortable, you know, diptych, I have to say. When I say there was, you know, a Martian behind me in the sandwich shop, there is this sort of disconnect between this is not comedic. This was, you know, actually highly tragic. Um, and I think that was part of my mission with, with the book was to sort of put back, put the history back in its place. And it did begin to some extent with my own realization that, you know, Salem, Salem witch trials are a sort of punchline or they're a sort of I'm not sure in the UK, but here there's sort of a forced stop along adolescence when at some point in high school you either read Hawthorne or you read Arthur Miller. But but the but the actual savagery of the thing is lost along the way, um, as is that sense of a story mutating to the point where it becomes not just poisonous, but deadly. 
And that was one of the modern resonances that I think I was sort of playing with when I started. But I was aware of how um, I, who grew up in a very small Massachusetts town and at a period of my life even lived in Andover, knew nothing of this. So I was really starting with my own ignorance and how the word Salem Witch Trail get batted around um, you know, as a sort of slogan. And today, of course, everything's a witch hunt, which it wasn't when I wrote the book. Um, but that nobody ever says, you know, innocent people died at the hands mm -hmm. of members of their community with whom they sat, you know, to, next to whom they sat in meeting or to whom they were related by blood. Um, and that's to me one of the most sort of blood curdling parts of it is that many of these people go home, many of these people are released from jail at the end of the summer, early in the winter, and they go home to have meals with people who have accused them. Sisters sit down next to brothers who have accused them. Kids go home to families where there's no mother because she hanged because they testified against her. Plenty of, there's another gender difference. Husbands testify against wives. No wife ever accuses a husband. A lot of husbands early on say, I always knew my wife was a witch. Um, and those things I think felt you know, like something I wanted to explore a little bit because the severity of those relationships and the, uh, you know, the tragedy of those relationships is something I don't think we've ever thought about because we don't really think about how, how tight a community this was and how much it was a family affair. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, it's easier to understand if you have adolescent kids, which I did when I was writing this. So, yeah. I do think it's a, it must be a really difficult thing to somehow um, both think about an appropriate way to, to commemorate or even maybe commemorate is the wrong word, I mean, to remember what happened or to somehow remember the victims of all of this. And I'm thinking um, here, I, I live in the north of England, so I'm very close to where the Pendle witch trials happened mm -hmm. and the purported place of the hangings in Lancaster now has a, a, a huge memorial on it that was that was built by a guy who's who built a memorial to demonstrate how much he loved his wife and I'm thinking well wow that's like a kind of really weird <laughs> location to you know to choose to, to build something like that and and the whole idea of I mean I, I haven't been to Salem but I I've had a look on on Google and, and seen some of the the plaques and things around um, and I'm imagining that's quite moving I think one of the hard things, and I don't think you all, you all have this problem as much as we do, is that Halloween and the Salem witch trials have been have caught have been caught up together, oh. and Salem and Salem, Massachusetts, is itself inundated with revelers for the entire month of October, and what they are celebrating is essentially Halloween, but somehow they seem to be celebrating the Salem witch trial. The whole thing has got um, the layers have gotten compressed. And I've written about this before, but just how this is the only American tragedy that has its own holiday. I mean, it's just, you know, people are dressed up in costume to commemorate innocent people having lost their lives. There's no other, there's no other analogous situation. So yeah, it is a very delicate matter. There's a beautiful memorial in Salem, which was a long time coming, which are essentially separate stones for each of the victims in a very sort of sparse, beautiful um, semicircle. And it's it's beyond moving. It's extremely evocative, and it's exactly it has exactly the right degree of simplicity. But and it goes to that question of how do we ever commemorate properly commemorate a tragedy? It's a really hard thing to do. It's a really hard thing to do soon thereafter. And in this case, it you know it took it took centuries. So maybe that's why we got it right. Yeah, I'm happy I went to Salem for my first time in March outside of the Halloween. <laughs> Because I, I think it's nice to be there to actually, like, I remember that semicircle. I remember the cemetery commemoration. And um, 
I did go to the witch museum. Actually, I think every museum I went to in bookstore, your book was front and yes. center. And that's actually, that was when, once here. And that's like when I manifested, I'm like, I need to talk to Stacey Schiff. I'm like, I need to know what this process was like because, yeah, there's, I mean, I have to say the um, guides and the historians, like all of those who work, know a lot of the layers and the nuance, but the thirst for the Halloween crowd can overwhelm. Like, I mean, I am doing this on purpose, but I'm drinking out of a Hocus Pocus Halloween cup. <laughs> just it. because, right, Hocus Pocus starts with the witch trials of like the sisters are unmarried and they're suspicious and they get um, hanged, but then they're gonna come back from the dead because the uh, black flame candles lit by a virgin. And, but it is, I mean- But you speak we, to how much it's part of us, right? I mean, you speak it to so much a part of the DNA. I mean, I think some of us think of it in terms of sort of that, you know, the vaccine that's there that, you you know, if you go too much astray, you're going to end up going down a, a crazy road like or a, a, a road of much regret like this one. But I think there's something, first of all, there's always a, you know, a, a fascination with the supernatural, but there's just something also about that sort of Puritan thinking that I think is hardwired for us. And it's, and it's very, you know, there are many things that sort of that sort of veer us back in that direction. I also just think there's such a modern twist in terms of, um, you know, oral culture, internet rumor, very similar. And, you know, you can see how some of these stories develop a life of their own when you see how, you know, things on the internet can develop lives of their own. So that a story that begins with just, you know, a local unwelcome un woman who's fairly homeless scaring two children can suddenly develop into a satanic conspiracy meant to topple the state all within a matter of months. Yeah, in a way, like how a pizza gate can get so much. Yeah, I didn't want to go there, but No, yeah. I know, but yeah, but I <laughs> and, think and also, yes, like lizard lizard people who who abuse children, exactly. I mean, there it seems like a very like a very far-fetched idea, but clearly um some of these ideas have had a lot of traction, right? And in yeah. this case, they're they're in this case they're founded in scripture, so they really have traction. Mm. Well, and you're right. I think it's helpful for everyone listening to this to reflect on even it's not analogous, but pop culture and pu publicity and what celebrities do and how these stories people think they know what they're up to in their lives and like the line between fact and fiction is so blurry in a lot of our culture, or how people start to buy certain conspiracy theories, but you don't, sometimes it's hard to know like where the, like where is the beginning of the conspiracy theory and where's the end? And and, and that's one of the interesting things too, is how, how difficult it is for truth to, um, to emerge and how difficult it becomes in a season like this one where the easiest way to be accused is to sound skeptical or to voice any kinds of questions whatsoever, how slowly and mincing were the first steps toward doubt. And the few people who first begin to register doubts do so very quietly, anonymously. They're people who are fairly bulletproof in terms of, of being able to say anything, because until that point, anyone who had said, you know, I won't arrest another witch suspect, or I don't believe in witchcraft, ended up in prison. So, you know, that ability to raise your hand and say, but I protest, it, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a luxury item sometimes, mm -hmm. and a necessary one. I think what's what I, I think the, the the one thing that I really loved about your book was the fact that it drew out all of those 
those nuances and all of those complex layers and all the interrelation of all these weird boundaries that were boundaries and not boundaries. But I'm also curious as to whether you think, um, and this is something that Andrew and I were talking about, whether you think there's a media adaption of the, the whole historical period in the time that you particularly like or think has been done well. You know, um, I'm going to plead somewhat ignorant on that subject because I have this stupid um, suggestible part of my brain that kept me from watching too much because I didn't want it to interfere in any way with the writing of the book. And then, of course, by the time you finish, you're on to something else. No. So by, by the same logic, I've never seen the Richard Burton Elizabeth Taylor Cleopatra because I was afraid no. that somehow I was going to write <laughs> yeah. story. But so the only thing I have seen and I think is magnificent is that um, wonderful independent movie, The Witch, which to me captures completely the chilly, sparse, you know, terrifying um, New England air. I think it's just an incredible sort of, you know, right on the screen, exactly the flavor and the perfume of, of, 17th, of 17th century New England. Was that the, the Robert Eggers film? Yes, I thought it was yes. fantastic, yeah. right? Brilliant. I just, I mean, it literally was exactly the right brand of terror for the story. To my mind. What for me was I saw that film uh, probably a couple of months before I read your book. Mm. Um, and so that was quite quite weird for me because I thought, oh, this is what Stacey's talking about. So you're suggestible but, too, right? But yeah, I, very, very, oh, completely. But to be able to get it visually, I mean, this is a period where we have so little, of which we have so, for which we have so few visual cues. And the fact that he's able to make that you know, trans, transposition to the screen, I think is remarkable because we, you know, we don't know what any of these people look like. We know that some of them are small. I mean, Titova who starts the, the story rolling, we know she must've been small because people are, you know, constantly talking about her sharing a, a stick with someone else. Or um, we know someone, one of the girls is fair-faced because someone says she's quite beautiful, but there's almost nothing visually. And, you know, to be able to sort of reimagine it all, I thought was, you know, a really miraculous feat. Well, I think the thing that, that really struck me was when I watched the film, I was just, oh, it's so dark. It's so dark. You can't see anything. It's so black. It's so dark. And then as soon as I started reading your book, that just leapt out. That could, because when I was talking to Andrew about the, the themes that leapt out, it was that blackness. It was the not being able to see and that weird thing between what was visible and what wasn't visible, you know. Um, Which is probably you know. the most important boundary when you talk about boundaries and that that and, you know, to me, it was never, it wasn't struck home. I will admit that I was in New York City during the, during the post-Hurricane Sandy blackout, which is the blackest I have ever seen New York City. I was not there for the earlier blackouts. And I suddenly understood, I was in the middle of researching the book, and I suddenly understood what it is to not be able to get your bearings because you don't know if that's, you know, the end of the street, the water, a building, you have no idea what's in front of you. And it's utterly and completely disorienting. And so that the idea that the, the dark was meant to become a character in the, in the story really kind of occurred to me early on because you have all of these people, you know, tripping their way home from taverns and, you know, the trees are in the wrong place. So obviously that's witchcraft or it could have been the tavern, right? So, you know, <laughs> the, the sense of not being able to find your foothold um, both psychologically and physically is really strong. And if you read the, there's fabulous, fabulous literature on this of, you know, what the medieval world felt like and what it sounded like and how in any one of these diaries, you have these marvelous descriptions of, you know, oh, is that a troop of Indians in the distance or is it a fisherman with a net or, you know, oh, are those monsters on the wall or are those a flock of pigeons? I mean, the, the conflation of things because you couldn't distinguish is, you know, utterly fascinating to me. 
Well, we're wrapping up, and I can't believe how quickly this time has gone. Hey, we just started. Exactly. I know. <laughs> but um, I do want to ask you, well, first, you gave us a lot of suggestions, a lot of material that the audience can watch. I want to rewatch The Witch. It was, I remember it being really um, isolating and full of the hysteria that, yeah. like Gail and said, you draw upon those evocative feelings. So, well, on that note, I am sure you're working on something else, Stacey. <laughs> so I want to ask you, you know, what can we all anticipate from you next? It has no witches in it. It isn't, it's a, it's a century later. So I just finished a biography of Samuel Adams, which is really about, which does not follow naturally on, as, as Cleopatra led naturally to 1692 Massachusetts, this doesn't entirely follow naturally. Um, it's, it's basically about civil disobedience on the run up to the revolution. And it in a way came because I, I'd written a book about Benjamin Franklin to your question about Ben Franklin earlier um, years ago. And, and this is sort of the middle, this is sort of how we got from Puritan America to Thomas Jefferson. It's the missing middle in a way. And, and about that person, and I think this is really what it was born of, that person who actually kind of takes a stand and makes the defiant and very unpopular plea for something um, at the expense of his own reputation, popularity, whatever, but really sort of leads the charge and changes minds, which is a pretty, something that no one had much luck doing in 1692. Oh, when can we anticipate this, Stacey? That would be November. <gasps> oh, Thank you. oh, it's soon. <laughs> I know, I'm supposed to be writing it right now. I don't know why I'm talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's definitely, you need to come back on, and I want Gail to be the guest co-host again. Me too, me too. We should, we'll move into the Boston <laughs> frame of mind and the revolution. <laughs> I mean, you know, we'll find some similar themes, but Stacy, thank you so much. This was just, I learned a lot about yeah, your process. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you both thank so you much for inviting me. Yeah. Your questions were marvelous. Thank you both. Thank you. Well, bye okay. to the audience out there. I hope none of you are listening to this too late at night. <laughs> so <laughs> turn the lights on. Okay. <laughs> bye everyone. Bye. Okay, bye. bye. We hope you enjoyed this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime in Academia episode. You can watch our video versions of our episodes on patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Join at the price of an iced coffee or join as an Ivory Tower member and get some of our exclusive merchandise. I could not be here without an amazing team. So I'm Andrew Rimby, the executive director, and I am joined with Mary DePippi, our chief contributor, who hosts True Crime in Academia. It comes out on Tuesdays. Jaren Usta is our marketing director, and our two interns are Nicole Arguello and Kimberly Dallas. And I'm actually here with Mary. So Mary, where can they follow us on social media? You can find us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. On Twitter, we are at Ivory Boiler Room. And then just search the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Facebook and you can like our page there. Wonderful. And we, Mary and I and the whole team, hope you all are healthy and happy. And we can't wait to join you and you know, have you all join us in the ivory tower boiler room next week. Bye everyone. Bye.